Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Athletic Performance and Science at Irish Rugby, Nick Winkleman. Tune in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Nick Winkleman on for part two. So it's been over two years since Nick's come on, and obviously a lot's changed in what Nick has been doing. So Irish Rugby as head of athletic performance and science, and in them uh, in the last two years has taken uh, Irish Rugby to number two in the world, which is an astonishing achievement from the guys over there. So it was really good to get Nick on. We started off with talking about Irish rugby and the areas of improvement that have been made over there, plus the areas that still need work to do and how he's pulled all the provinces together under various different projects. Secondly, um, a couple of questions that came from the Twitter message that I put out with regards to discussion points that people want to hear from Nick. And it was all obviously given Nick's expertise, all based around communication. So we cover a lot of topics with regards to communication hamstring injuries and uh, some stuff around self-reflection as uh, as coaches but also around what we actually do day to day in terms of queuing but also in terms of just life life in general and uh, and self-reflection as coaches so a great chat with nick which i'm sure you will absolutely love this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. 
So Imagier was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So Imagier works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website, which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Nick Winkleman. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I am delighted to welcome Nick Winkleman for a part two, which is two years since episode 93. So anyone that hasn't checked out part one, make sure you do. But welcome to a part two, Nick. Rob, honor to be here, my man. Thanks for having me back on. No, absolute pleasure. So last time we spoke, you'd been at with the uh, with Irish rugby for six or seven months. But do you want to give us, I know it's quite a while ago since, uh, obviously two years since we last spoke, do you want to give us a bit of a story to the build-up to that? And then we're going to dive in a little bit deeper to what you're doing at Irish rugby, the kind of journey so far, and um, and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I'll try not to bore anyone with an extended history here, but uh, long story short, I think I've been in strength conditioning now for just over uh, 15 years. Uh, prior to joining Irish Rugby in 2016, I had worked for a place called Exos, formerly Athletes Performance, for 10 years. Uh, and, and prior to that, did some work in, in collegiate and professional baseball in my college years at Oregon State University. Uh, fundamentally, I've, I've had the luxury of, of working with a lot of different sports over my time, notably NFL and, and elite military probably make up the vast majority of my of my CV, so to speak, and yeah, since since joining Irish Rugby, my, my title is Head of Athletic Performance and Science, and it's it's a really diverse role. I get to work across all of our national teams, so that's men's and women's uh, sevens and fifteens, as well as because of the, the the governing body and the structure that we have here in Ireland, as well as our four provincial teams, and the ability to work across all the levels of athletic performance allows us to interrogate the, the specific aspects of development, the young up-and-comers who are just trying to get their shot, all the way to the ones that have, have earned the, the green jersey and play at the highest level. So to be able to look across development to a high-performance environment is, is a true luxury. And I'm honored, uh, Rob, at the end of the day, to work with some amazing people here within Irish rugby. So every day is a new adventure, and I'm loving it. Excellent. So just in terms of the structure for anyone that doesn't know, because obviously yeah. you've obviously come from the States and people know you a lot over there as well. Just want to give us a bit of a, an overview of the Irish rugby structure in terms of provinces yeah. and national team and where you fit. Brilliant. Yeah. So Irish rugby is, for lack of a better term, what you might call a, a centralized union, uh, similar to other unions, notably New Zealand. So the four provinces, specifically Leinster, Munster, Connacht, and Ulster, those represent our four professional teams, fundamental professional rugby teams. And each of those have an academy and then kind of an age grade pathway that we call a sub-academy. So the entire developmental squad, if you would, wraps up into each of those four. Uh, then from there, obviously, we have our representative sides. So we have our under-20s national team. Then we have our men's national team, our women's national team, as well as our sevens national teams, men and women. So my position fundamentally heads the, the athletic performance arm across all of those entities. 
So I get to work with our heads of athletic performance within each of those individual national teams, as well as within each of those individual professional teams. And for me, when you look at the role, the simplest way to think about it, and I'll steal the the terms from my man, uh, Dave Howarth, who who leads our team in Connect, we talk about three things, people, uh, programs, and places. And that really encapsulates what I do. I focus on our, our coaches and I focus on our players, ensuring that, you know, in, in my position, coach development is player development. So we're putting as much focus on our coaches, their leadership, their skill sets, and what they feel they need to thrive in their respective environments. Our programs are fundamentally our systems. And for me and where I sit, I'm looking at the systems that give continuity to the entire country. So things like the way we approach GPS and load management to subjective objective monitoring, you know, to interrogating new strategies and new tools. Very much so, I lead the charge with the support of everybody else to make sure that we're using systems globally from the national down to the provincial that give us a consistent opportunity to manage players. And then finally, when I mean places, I mean our environments, right? So the way we look at equipment, the way we look at facility design, the way we even look at organizing sessions structurally, do we have the right environments for our people and our players to thrive? So, so hopefully that gives everyone an optic on the structure and then the role and the role itself is diverse every day is slightly different so in terms of your input into the provincial team so leinster munster connor and and ulster how much are you there to guide are you there to be a a kind of another person for them guys to run something by or are you a little bit more involved in what they do and how they do it yeah, it's it it's it's a great question. I mean, as the head of the department, you know, technically, even though I don't I don't lead with this, all of the respective athletic performance positions wrap up into my role, right? So very much so, I think a key part is is leadership. But you highlighted the number one word that I like to use there, and that that's guidance. And I'd add to that that's support. So very much so, it's in in a position where number one, Rob, we have shared accountability. Right? So when we come up with a new system, maybe it's around GPS, maybe it's around objective monitoring, what have you, we've all, and when I say we all, the key leaders in strength conditioning come together and say, okay, this is going to be the best practice, and this is how we want that best practice assessed. Right? So my job is to ensure that we are executing against that. Right? So that allows us to almost self-manage in a way with me ensuring that we, we execute against those pieces. But then you've nailed it. The vast majority is having an opportunity to engage with these individuals, be a sounding board, uh, allow them to present problems, allow me to present problems, and we collectively come up with solutions. I'm a big believer in autonomy and shared accountability, and very much so that's how I approach it. The shared accountability does a lot of the management. I just make sure the optics are on it. Otherwise, it's autonomy to get out there and do a heck of a job, knowing that you have a resource from a leadership perspective at the IRFU. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, in terms of the was is was your role or is your role a new role or was there someone before this doing similar things? Yeah, no, there, there was someone in the role uh, before me. Okay. I think the reality is, any time you know a new person comes in, a role evolves, but very much so that the spirit of having people within Irish rugby that can be that source of continuity and that source of support across their 
domain, whether that be S&C, medical, physio, nutrition, what have you, rugby, right? That's very much so in the spirit of how uh, Irish rugby is designed. Mm-hmm. So is there any th- specific things that you're proud of in terms of the, the couple of years that you've done there and the, the systems and the processes that you've put in place to bring them, bring them four provinces together, but still allow them, like you said, the autonomy to do their own thing? Ultimately, I'm proud of our people. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if I've, and, and I don't say that to be cliche, uh, the number one thing I have focused in on more than anything else is ensuring that our people have everything they need to execute day in, day out. So that's ensuring that we have the equipment, we have the systems, we have the insights, and we have the structure. Okay. But at the same time, it's being able to work with each of those coaches and help them identify their own professional development plans where they can look at their specific remit, where they feel there's opportunities for improvement in that remit, and then specifically targeting areas that they feel is going to help their respective club, right, or, or, or national team. So in that case, it's been both when we've had the opportunity to bring new team members on board. I've been very proud of our, our ability to bring incredibly talented motivated individuals into our system. And then for those people, plus the people already within our system, it's putting structures to help them thrive. And it's giving them that autonomous workspace to do that. So at the end of the day, the thing I'm most proud of is our people because fundamentally any success that we've had at the, at the multitude of levels is a consequence of them putting our players in the best position to perform. Mm-hmm. So just to pick apart a little bit of something that you said right at the start, and that was your experience in um, with Exos. Do you think that the, the fact that you've worked with a number of athletes, a uh, number of industries like military, um, NFL, all them kind of um, – who have their different cultures and their different nuances when you're dealing with the, the kind of people that you are – has that put you in a good position in terms of your role now? And I'll bring this back a little bit later on, but in terms of it, the experience that young coaches can get, because there's always a, um, a kind of trade-off between going down one route, like a, a rugby route, I want to be a rugby guy, and making that niche your own, but also the other school of thought, as in getting as many different experiences as possible and being much more of a generalist, is, this, is that experience that you've had put you in a great position for what you're doing now? And what would you encourage other people to do? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. So there's a couple of different ways to approach answering it. Um, so let me start with the present and then I'll work backwards. Every single time I walk into one of our professional setups, right, it has a unique structure. While there's similarities, it still has its own unique structure. It has its own unique culture. It has its own players. It has its own staff, right? They are not going to be carbon copies of one another. And then equally scale that again up to the national team, right? Men's and women's, let alone the seven setup, where it's a completely different structure. So when we talk about scaling and applying in my case, athletic performance, but in my colleague's case, the the medical nutrition on the rugby side of it, it is going to be different in each of those environments, even though we all play the same game. And yet we have the unique responsibility, Rob, of trying where it makes sense to bring continuity 
to that developmental process. Because at the end of the day, we need to have one team, right, wear the green jersey, but that's made up of four, four different teams, right? So there has to be a certain level of overlap, but you also need to preserve those unique identities, right? That's one of the richness about the sport and about the country. So then to answer your question, that requires me to be able to look at each of those scenarios with a a, a unique eye, so to speak, and understand what are the, the needs and the demands of that specific team at that specific level. So there is no carbon copy. So if someone was to come into the role that I'm in with a carbon copy view and that this is the way athletic performance needs to be done, and we need to copy and paste that across all the entities, while the principles of good practice, yes, you can carbon copy those and you can copy and paste them, but the methodology, so to speak, you use to bring those principles to life, no way. You cannot say that everybody has to do it the exact same way. And if you did, you'd stifle creativity. One of the great things about this environment is by having four entities that have a good bandwidth of autonomy, that allows them to try different things. Some things work, some things don't. And through our centralized discussion and the great leadership group we have that represents all of those heads, they can feed that in. And thus learning from one can be learning for all. And because everyone feeds into that, there, there's really no competitive spirit. There's no, there's no homework Covering. Don't get me wrong, they want to beat each other when they play in the interpros, but they see the value of that sharing far exceeds anything of, of, of keeping to yourself and thinking irrationally that you have some silver bullet. So if you then back up, my world was, yes, it was diverse. Working with the NFL Combine and the structure of that versus stepping into a military environment where you're on a base and you don't even know what these individuals do, yet you're supposed to educate them, to working with baseball, hockey, basketball, to running an education department, to to working as a high-performance coach, but yet doing that within a business and seeing what it takes to make a business run. And that businesses can go bankrupt. They can disappear. In sport, we might just change the coach. Right? So in business, you have this sensitivity that you have to thrive. You have to have feedback loops. You have to have systems that are fit for purpose. And you have to know at the end of the day what your client, the athlete, needs and make sure that you are designing and bringing in people in service of that. So I think that diversity of experience in, in, a, in a long way to answer your questions absolutely served me because I see each of our teams as a different entity. My job is to know where that uniqueness should be left to flourish but then identify where in service of our players globally does it make sense to have continuity and bring those systems and those opportunities for our staff together so that we can align on what that continuity looks like. Now, the pathway to do that, Rob, to your ultimate question, do I believe that coaches need to be generalists and get a diversity of experience? Or do people need to go down one path and really hammer in? Um, I think at the end of the day, you have to look at, at the idea of, of Simon Sinek and the, and the many Stoic philosophers that preceded him, and that is the idea of your why. What's going to bring meaning? What's going to bring joy into your life? And I think that should be the guidance of every step that you take. But then understand that you also need to be a realist and respect the fact that any given environment is only going to cultivate so many skills. So if that environment fulfills you, but does not completely develop you, then you need to take it upon yourself to go outside of that window and get development, listening to podcasts, 
reading research articles, going to see people speak that you disagree with, not just the people that you do agree with, and then going to CPDs, leaving your, leaving your country, leaving your sport, allowing you to be that much more of a richer solution for the world you work in. And the second you start to feel that that world you work in is no longer giving you joy, you have a responsibility to respect that that's your decision, not the environment's, and look for an opportunity to develop yourself elsewhere. And that would be my, my philosophy on approaching it. Very much so nonlinear, but be led by what fulfills you and what you need to fulfill to do your job. Mm-hmm. Superb. And this, so this is going to bring me to what I had right at the end of our chat, and I'm going to bring it forward because it seems to make sense. And, and what I was going to chat about was self-reflection in terms of um, the cueing, the coaching, which we'll get onto in a minute. But yep. what I want to chat about here is the self-reflection of the of the coaching itself, but also of of life and the, like you said, the meaning that certain jobs bring you. Is there any process that you go through or have been through in the past that you can talk to us about of uh, in terms of that self-reflection and where you've how you've identified certain things that may be missing from your the, the current role that you're in so of so you've had to go elsewhere to kind of take that take that box is there any process that you go through now uh, or have gone through in the past to be able to do that that you can tangibly share with us sure i think there there are two different ways to look at that there is the habit of reflection which i'll speak on and then there is a process of reflection For me, when I say the word habit, that suggests that it is something ingrained. It is by the very nature of the word habitual and that you have brought it into your daily life. Okay. And so from my perspective, I don't necessarily sit down with a journal and write down every single day what went well, what didn't go well. However, I absolutely allocate headspace after just about every interaction to consider it. So for example, I had a speed session with the sevens uh, boys. After it was done, and I do this with every session, chatted with the physio briefly, chatted with a couple of the other strength coaches, had a quick chat with the rugby coaches, and just even chatted with the players to get a pulse on the session. And then from there, as I'm walking back to my office, I run my perception of the session versus the pulse and the information I got from those I just discussed with, and I just log in. Hey, what's one thing, two things we can do better next time? And interestingly enough, Rob, I build that into every session that I run pragmatically, and I always call it the two plus two, right? Simple math here for success. The two plus two is what are two opportunities for us as a playing group to improve upon the next time we do this or a similar session. And that means there was 20 some players in that session yesterday. You know, they come up with two things that they feel that they can improve as a group. It might have to do with focus. It might have to do with technique. It might have to do with being on time. It could be anything, right? But that's led from them. And I just echo. And then I, I, we finished with what, what are two things that we did remarkably well? Uh, what are two behaviors that we want to see ourselves bring forward? And again, same thing is shared. Hey, intention was really, really good. And we thought a couple of these cues really helped us make that change. Or we thought we executed this drill really well. We had some issues at the front end, but we persevered. We were creative and we found solutions. Our attacking toolbox improved, whatever it might be. 
And this whole idea, Rob, of the of the two plus two at the end of a session is kind of philosophically how I approach every interaction, whether it's the end of a meeting, it's the end of a training session, it's the end of a day, it's the end of a project, it's even the end of an email. I'll just take a couple deep breaths and allow my mind to go through that process of what went well that I want to preserve moving forward and what didn't go well, where are the opportunities to get 1% better next time I have that interaction with that person. Okay, so for me, there's many ways to do reflective practice, but it's like brushing your teeth. Just make it a habit, and however you want to bring it to life, whether it's in the mind space, the head space, or it's on a physical pen and paper, do whatever is going to be sustainable for you. But just do it. That's the key. The, the structural approach to reflective practice, for me, there's many models out there, but I love, we love here the SWOT analysis, the strengths weaknesses, opportunities, and threats to bringing those opportunities to life. And we apply that with just about everything we do. We look at our programs through that lens, so an entire SNC program through a SWOT analysis. We might look at a specific system, right? The way we approach GPS and load management. What's the strengths of our current system? What are the weaknesses, right? What are the opportunities for improvement areas we can target? And what are the threats, Right? And I'm not talking about the hardware here. I'm talking about the process we put around it. So for me, those are, are, are probably two tangible examples of resources or approaches we use for reflective practice. But, but for me, it goes back to, to give people a resource here that they can go out and read, Daniel Goleman's work on emotional intelligence. Uh, the, the specific outlet or access to that was through a book that I read called Primal Leadership. Uh, to this day, Primal Leadership is one of two books that I feel has left me materially changed when I was done reading it. And emotional intelligence is self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. And for me, what this comes down to is, are you simply scanning over an interaction, scanning over a day, and looking at it as best you can from that bird's eye objective view pulling out the big rocks that you want to keep going, but being humble enough to say that wasn't good enough. What can I do just to be a little bit better next time? If you have that approach, you have no choice but to get better. Superb. So on, on a bigger picture, on a more of a like a long-term career development, long-term life development, yes. how do you go about that? Mm. Uh You have to, to a degree, Rob, you have to be able to listen to your heart. And, and by listening to your heart, I mean listen to your intuition. And by listening to your intuition, understand that your body will give you signals. When you are in a joyous state, uh, when you are in a troubled state, when you are uh, psychologically and professionally being fulfilled, and when you are not. And when you start to feel that joy drain, when you start to feel that psychological and professional fulfillment uh, diminish or dissolve, you have to use that as a trigger to ask two questions. Question one, am I going about this the right way? Meaning, am I working efficiently? 
Am I setting myself up to have that joy within this position? Do I even remember why I took this position in the first place? And I do that all the time, right? So I change the way I approach my schedule, right? I look at the way I prepare for meetings. Uh, I take those daily reflective practice pieces and I remind myself of those opportunities for improvement, asking myself the question, have I executed on any of those internal KPIs? And if I say yes, I'm efficient, I'm managing my time, I'm prepared for my meetings, I'm executing against the job description, I'm doing everything that I can, yet I still have that little bit of dread, that little bit of, oh, I got to get up at six, I got to get up at five to go into work. That intuition is telling you something. Okay, so if you do that initial analysis that, hey, I'm doing everything to get the most out of this job yet I still don't feel fulfilled, then you have a responsibility, responsibility notably to your players, to your athletes, to the people you work for, to then start to go through a, that, that larger self-reflection, see what will fulfill me. And I think there's many approaches to do that. But again, you, you could do worse than picking up Simon Sinek, start with why, and just run your life through that filter when you start to feel that intuition telling you that, that the current path you're on needs a little bit of a nudge, a redirection. And once you have that, that's not easy done, Rob. You don't solve that puzzle in one day. And the fact of the matter is if you have daily self-reflection, you start to get the early signs of what you think is going to fulfill you in five, 10 years time from now. But at the end of the day, as long as you are understanding that you cannot get to the point where your dread and your lack of joy affects your work and inevitably starts to impact the people who initially you were there for, notably your players, as long as you can get on top of that early and you can redirect early enough, um, I think the fact of the matter is we know people are going to redirect a number of times in their life. Don't allow that redirection to happen so late that you're miserable and you feel you have no other options. So I hope you're enjoying part one. We're just going to take a very quick break. So in part two, we are going to discuss more around communication and queuing, which obviously Nick is a, um, an expert in that area. We also talk about hamstring injuries, uh, technical mastery versus strength and imbalance, which is an ongoing discussion, it seems, on social media with some of the big hitters in the, uh, in the industry, but also self-reflection as coaches, whether that be on the cues we use, on how we coach, but also on life itself. So a really interesting part two coming up for you. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit 
is the Ready Band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So also sponsoring today's podcast is St. Mary's University. So St. Mary's is internationally renowned as a leader in strength and conditioning education, and it was the first UK institution to offer an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning. And its master's program, which I have been through personally and would highly recommend, was the first part-time distance learning strength and conditioning course in the UK. And it's the emphasis on the development of coaching skills and relevance of theory to practice, which makes St. Mary's stand out from the other courses that are out there. So both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate courses are delivered in the purpose-built state-of-the-art performance education centre and anyone that's been to St Mary's will know what a fantastic uh, facility that is and is taught by staff that are highly experienced coaches and expert sports scientists. And one thing that students are really on the lookout for now is universities linked with uh, professional sport and that's definitely something that St Mary's has with their links with multiple football clubs across London in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham, but also uh, London Irish in rugby and Sutton Tennis Academy. They also embed students within the Royal Ballet Company and Royal Ballet School in London. And this obviously helps students to obtain uh, necessary coaching experience to maximise their chances of getting employment post-graduation. So in addition to the strength and conditioning courses, they offer both undergraduate and postgraduate programmes in physiology and sports rehab. But if you're interested in getting to know more about the course at St Mary's, make sure you visit their website, uh, which is stmarys.ac.uk forward slash courses. So one thing that I want to just move us on to and something that obviously you're very well known for and that's that's the communication side of things as we've just discussed and case in point how you articulated them uh, them points that you just have. So in terms of the communication that we have with our athletes and we'll get into we'll di- dive, dive a little bit deeper into this in a minute but why should we on a on a, a bro- very broad question why should we be concerned with what we say and how we say it? Such a good question. Such a good question. I've my answer to this question has evolved over the years, uh, as it does. And the current way I'm answering this question is through a little bit of a thought experiment. Okay. When I go and give a presentation now, I'll ask people to put their hand up if they've been on a on a flight, if they've been on a plane. Most times you get about 99% of the room putting their hand up. And then I'll say, okay, how many of you have been on 20 flights? And some go down, 50 flights, more go down, 100 flights, right? Maybe you have a few people left, okay? And I pick on one of them. And I say, and I ask them a question. I said, okay, you've been on over 100 flights. I'm quite confident that on each of those flights, you were given a safety briefing, that more or less would have been similar across all of those. Can you go ahead and recite that safety briefing for the entire room? And inevitably, the person looks at you like, are you serious? They feel like they just came on a game show and everyone starts to have a chuckle as you're laughing there. And while it's in part for effect, uh, in large part, it's not. And whenever I say, listen, I I won't make you do that, but here's the point. Proximity does not equal learning. Just because you are around something, 
just because you are exposed to something, just because your coach is talking, just because you are playing, does not guarantee you that you are going to learn from those scenarios. Otherwise, everyone who's been on X amount of flights could easily recite the safety briefing, assuming that they listen to it in some capacity, but yet we can't. So what is this telling us? It tells us that attention, literally what you put in the spotlight of the mind, attention is the currency of learning. You only get better at that with which you pay attention to, okay? So if we understand that unequivocally, that that is a step, that is the ultimate step, we have to pay attention for learning to ensue, then coaches need to understand their chief responsibility is to capture, keep, and direct attention. So when I give these presentations, I give a narrative on how do we capture attention using things like novelty, using things like motivation. How do we keep motivation, or excuse me, how do we keep attention? Simply, people only pay attention to things that they find interesting, things that they are motivated to pay attention to, which as long as you're putting the why and the what, if you explain why this is important to them, how it's going to help their rugby career, how it's going to help their football career, their baseball career, and they truly believe you, then they're going to pay attention to whatever else you say or whatever else follows. The final piece then, which is obviously what we're talking about here, it's, it's what, do we, what do we put in the athlete's head, what I call directing attention. Well, that's where we start to look at this idea of cueing, okay? And when we talk about cueing, there are two categories that we generally think about, but they truly live on a continuum. One of those categories, what we call an internal cue, is any language that is inside the perimeter of the body. Okay, so that's talking about flexing a joint, extending a joint, flexing a muscle, tensing a muscle, right, elongating a muscle, whatever it might be. It's your kinesiology, your biomechanical languages. And then you have this external cue, which is anything outside the perimeter of the body or really any linguistic tactic that doesn't directly reference that joint motion or that muscle. So that might be things like talking about pushing the bar away, exploding off the line, uh, jumping up like a rocket taking off, landing and absorbing the ground like a spring. So the use of analogy or visual language. But the key commonality, it is not referencing any one joint or any one muscle. Okay. When we look at the evidence, despite the fact that this absolutely terrorizes certain coaches' intuitions around how we should communicate, there are now hundreds of practical, dare I say, papers that look at a cross movement, jumping, change of direction, sprinting, bench press balance, this idea of internal language versus external language. And I won't pretend that all papers or all studies are perfect. They're not, not in any field. But the reality is the vast majority of the evidence to the level where you should really, in my mind, be calling this a principle is that externally directed cues promote performance and notably long-term learning far better than internal language or internal cues. So Rob Gray puts it this way. When you are teaching somebody, are you going to need to reference the body at some level? 
Absolutely, Rob. Let me make that very clear because I was in a Twitter discussion this morning about this. I have no problem and I promote people using body-centric internal language to say, hey, you got to get your feet shoulder apart, shoulder width apart, your hips have got to be back, your chest needs to be up. That is all descriptive language. It's telling them what the movement kind of looks like. However, for me, here's the principle, loud and clear. The last idea you should put in anybody's head, let alone an athlete's head, before they move is an external cue. An external cue is the GPS coordinates of the movement. It tells me where I'm going and how I should get there. Explode off the line like a jet taking off tells a story. An an internal cue like extend your hips or explode through your legs, that's a pit stop. That's going to the gas station. That's not the freaking destination. And the reality is this, if you look at the evidence, and I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of the science behind this, but I'll leave people with this to consider. If you focus on the micro of one joint in your language, you fundamentally sacrifice the macro that the brain requires to put the whole movement together and achieve achieve an ultimate goal. So when you're teaching sprinting, if you're throwing a cue about the knee or the hip, you fundamentally, in my opinion, are saying that isolated hip or that isolated knee is more important than the ultimate goal of the sprint technique as a whole or sprinting fast as the ultimate goal altogether. And that's what coaches have to compete with. So use internal language to describe no problem. But when we talk about proximity, the last idea we put in the head, in my opinion, should be an external cue, which includes your analogies and your metaphors. Mm -hmm. So with the analogies, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper on that because I know that's something that you've spoken a lot about, especially trawling through the couple of Twitter conversations that you've had over the last couple of months. Just want to talk to us a little bit about first the importance of analogies and maybe the, the difference in how you may formulate them and then how we know what or guess how an analogy um, is reflected in the movement from one person to another. I want to I tell a very brief story to answer that question because I think the, the question will illuminate itself naturally. Rob, when we are born, let's have a little back and forth here. When we are born, are we born with language? Can we speak? No. No, we cannot. Okay, that's a universal. But are we born with reflexes and senses? Absolutely, we are. Okay, so we come out into this world and we have a toolbox. Our toolbox allows us to accumulate ideas around things that we see, things that we feel, smell, taste, touch. And we have some reflexes that almost kickstart that progress to make sure that we can get food, to make sure that we're responding to things when they go in our hand so we grasp them, right? And inevitably, what do you see little kids do, little babies? What do they do? They grab everything, Rob, don't they? And they put it all in their mouth, okay? This is intu- intuitive. You know this. You don't need a scientific textbook to tell you that what I'm saying here is true, okay? So what is going on? We are accumulating experiences, true life sensory experiences, mental representations of the world around us. And then inevitably, you start to hear children babble. They start to to talk. They start to formulate words. And like riding a bike or learning to walk, we think as parents we're teaching them. We're not. It's a natural phenomenon. People have an instinct. Steven Pinker talks about this to, to speak, to develop language. But what do you think those words represent? Those words represent those early sensory experiences. 
Do you know that it's a known phenomenon that children, when initially learning to talk, they recite more nouns than they do verbs, right? Think about why that is. A noun, table, chair, apple, banana. These are concrete things, right, that you can see, experience, and touch. Whereas a verb like stand, walk, run, it's abstract. It's relating to something concrete, but in and of itself, it is not concrete. So that reinforces this idea that language is built on top of sensory experience. Language is built off these mental representations of the world we see and we know. The fact of the matter is we know that words are only symbols, and these symbols are only as good as what you relate those symbols to, because I don't know, I mean, Rob, can you speak Mandarin? Absolutely not. (laughs) You cannot speak Mandarin, because those words, those symbols, have not been associated with a lived experience on your side of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So there's nothing inherent about language except that with which we apply to it. So where am I going with this? Language, Rob, quite literally, is the analog, the analogy, to the sensory experiences those words represent, okay? So now let's scale this into a coaching world. When I'm using language around head, shoulders, knees, and toes, but yet I'm trying to explain hip biomechanics or knee extension to an athlete that has never considered those words in their life, they haven't taken the kinesiology class. They haven't taken the biomechanics class. All they've ever done is just run fast, play with their friends. They got a video game they love, but they haven't given much consideration to those biomechanical words. Yet we start throwing those words at them. Why do they fail? Very simply put, that athlete doesn't have the sensory motor hashtags. They have never related a lived experience to that language. However, if I know that one of the games they like to play is FIFA 2019, and one of those players, right, is one of their favorite players, I might say, hey, you know so-and-so? Did you watch the match of them on the weekend where they had that big, strong break for the ball? Oh, yeah, 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 I saw that. That was fantastic. Awesome. On your next sprint, I want you to freaking explode off the line like you're that same player chasing down the ball, right? And in that case, I'm using an analogy to impart intensity on someone's repetition. But what I've done there is I've taken a lived experience for which I know they have language, for which I know they have a visual in their mind, and I've stolen it. I've taken the pieces of that that I know relate to this thing I'm going to teach them, and I simply apply it over here. Equally so, when I'm working with an older player, let's say who has a child, they know that when they hold their child, they're very gentle. So I might say, I want you to land from this jump squat as if you had your baby in your hands. Immediately, that starts to suggest that I can't have this sudden drop. I don't want this loud noise, this loud bang. I have to slowly decelerate all the way down. The reality is I don't have to tell them how to do that at the hip, the knee, and the ankle. Because inside of the analogy for which they can tangibly relate to, it has all of that rich sensory information right on board. And when I say, Rob, that the cue or the analogy has the sensory information on board, I literally 
mean that? And let me give you one example. Studies now through this idea of, of, of simulation. What I mean by simulation is this. Imagine someone is holding on to a force transducer, just holding on to it. So meaning any change in grip, right, this thing will pick it up. If you just start talking to this person and using language and you say table, chair, banana, push, run, swing, computer, and just on and on and on. Nouns and verbs, nouns and verbs. When this person hears verbs related to the hand like squeeze or grip, even though they're not told to grip anything hard, it's not a grip strength test, Rob, guess what happens? They see small, minute activations and an increase in grip. And when you take then someone and have them lay in the fMRI machine and have them read sentences, and these sentences have action words within them. Guess what happens? The parts of the brain responsible for bringing those actions like walk, run, sprint to life, those same parts of the brain light up, which means language is represented and stored in the same brain regions responsible for bringing those words and actions to life. So when I say to a parent who happens to be an athlete, I want you to land from this squat, from this jump as if you are holding your baby or as if your baby just fell asleep in the crib next to you. Literally, they are able to simulate the motor experience required to bring that to life. They can download it out of the words and bring it into their body. And I think at the end of the day, that's why external cues, because they relate to reality, endpoints, verbs, and actions, and analogies, which capture the real experiences of life, quite literally, are the best cues we can come up with because they map to the motor system they're trying to influence. Some more evidence towards actually getting to know your players, because not only we build build relationships, but this kind of these kind of information that you're canvassing in these general conversations about their kids, about their families, about their, you know, what they like to do, what they don't like to do, can all be used positively in different environments. If there ever was a defense for getting to know your players outside of the goodwill and the logical fact you should do it because you're just a good person and you want to get to know them is what we are talking about right now. The internal narrative of your athlete is the narrative you can use to teach them to learn these skills. Absolutely. Cool. So one last thing that I want to touch on, this is, and this is based on um, a couple of discussions that I've, I've seen and, and, and overheard. And this is regarding hamstring injuries. And this is in terms of the strength and imbalance kind of group of thought not to say these aren't intermingled but what i'm people love to polarize themselves and put them in a bucket so strength and imbalance over here on the right and technical mastery over here on the left and the competing fractions between the two are how people like to perceive that fraction between the two where's your head at when it comes to hamstring injuries and how these two play off against each other and the levels of importance which i know is horrendous for me to put like that but yeah, no, no, no. Um, I, I have a philosophy on movement in general, and it hasn't, it hasn't failed me to date. And I feel it maps to, to this conversation or really any conversation on movement. And I, I talk about this in terms of the, 
the three P's of position, power, and, and pattern. And sometimes these heuristics, these, these acronyms can, can be a shortcut that actually hides reality. I think this is pretty representative, but I'm, I'm open to critique. Uh, by position, can they get into the right position, Rob? So do they have the requisite mobility and structural stability to even get enough hip flexion or hip flexion with knee extension, let's say, to, to load the hamstrings safely and effectively? Okay, so for me, that, that's step one. And assessing that passively, assessing that actively. Step two, then, is, is by power, I mean it in its broadest terms. Do they have the appropriate strength qualities? And can they express those strength qualities in a number of ways? So for me, can they express it eccentrically? Can they express it concentrically in in a knee-dominant or a hip-dominant motion in the weight room? For me, that does not default to the fact that somehow they're not going to get injured or that they're completely protected, but by equal measure – just because they have great strength and great power abilities in there, it doesn't mean that they're completely protected. So we have to look at that as a continuum. And if you look at the evidence, we know that. But for me, do they have this minimal standard of strength and power in the various positions? And notably, eccentrically and concentrically and isometrically, can they express it in these various ways? And then finally, which I know this is a, a, a big point from you know, a friend of mine, Stu McMillan, and others, and I definitely would fall into this court. I believe that you you can't lift your way out of bad technique, right? Just as, you know, you, you can't run yourself out of a bad diet if you're trying to lose body fat. I think the same story applies here. So do they have mobility, stability? Do they show the requisite strength and notably eccentric strength or, or isometric that, that appears to be eccentric, right, as is the case in many of these loading schemes. And then finally, do they have the pattern? But most notably, here's where I think a big missing link is, Rob, multidirectional movement. I think so often we, we undervalue the fatigue and the inefficiency contributing to that fatigue that occurs with ineffective hip range of motion, rotation, and the ability to sidestep, change direction, and move in multiplanar ways. And even though the most common mechanism for a hamstring injury is straight line, that doesn't for one instant suggest that it couldn't be an inability in multiplanar movement that is contributing to that. And what we're looking at is is starting to, uh, I wouldn't say suggest anything, but let me put it a different way. What we're looking at around hip rotation, abduction, adduction, in addition to any of your sagittal plane motions, we are putting as much weight on that as we are on your traditional linear-based pieces. So I still think the reason you have people out there, Rob, fighting for the pattern is because I don't believe we've fully brought in the importance of patterning into the training system. In, compar- in comparison to the narrative around strength, that's not to diminish the importance of strength. It's to scaffold the importance of the pattern. And notably, what I want to bring to the conversation today is the importance of arced and change of direction insofar as patterning and the way it might directly contribute to any fatigue and fatigue-related injuries in linear-based movement that underpins a possible injury. Superb. Well, I am very conscious of time. And I just want to firstly, before before I forget, when I when you presented at the um, the Wasps conference, I think it was like last year or the year before, I 
must highlight the quality of your presentation slides because talking oh. about the the um, the stuff that we talked about before around um, around capture, keep, and direct attention, slides absolutely on point. So very well done there because they were absolutely quality. But where can where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on, whether you're speaking, whether you're sharing research, whether you're sharing what you guys are doing, where's the best place? Yep. Yep. Whether whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter or Instagram, it's all at Nick Winkleman. Uh, notably Twitter is probably where I'm the the most active. And and I will say that if if anything that we've discussed today is of interest uh, my book, The Language of Coaching, uh, will be coming out from Human Kinetics late this year, early next. Oh, superb! Didn't know that was in the. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know that was in the offing, <laughs> but I didn't realize it was so soon. Okay, nice. That's end of this year, start of two thousand and twenty. Yes, all things going well. Absolutely, <laughs> it's coming no matter what. Though the train's out of the station, so I'm almost. Do- I'm almost done with it. So we'll we'll see how long it takes once it gets to the editorial stage. You're a busy man, and. Just to point out, because I always get this wrong, and it's E-L in Winkleman, not L-E in Winkleman. <laughs> you got it. Thank Correct. you. You got it. Superb. Well, thanks a lot, Nick. Really appreciate your time and uh, really enjoyed chatting to you for the, uh, for the second time. So keep in touch and we'll chat soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Nick. So massive thanks to Nick for giving up his time. I know he's a horrendously busy man, especially coming up to this time of year, uh, moving into February and the uh, the Six Nations coming up. So really massive thanks to him for, for giving up his time and having a chat. Also big thanks to I Measure You, to Hawking Dynamics, to Fatigue Science and for St Mary's University for sponsoring this episode today. So really appreciate them guys coming on as sponsors and making the podcast, allowing the podcast to function in its current form week to week. So got some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, a couple of part twos, uh, one part one, but hope you enjoyed this episode with Nick and I will chat to you next week.